2: Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Mouse, and welcome to or welcome back to my channel. If you're new here I upload true crime videos just like this one every Sunday, although sometimes also on other days of the week too. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in then be sure to hit that subscribe button and tick that little bell so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video. In today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at three cold cases that have been solved in 2022. We'll take a look at the case of Maurice Ann Chivarella, whose family have finally been able to get closure some 57 years after she was murdered. Further, we'll delve into the case of four cold cases that through the use of genealogy have been linked together and finally solved some 40 years later. And finally, we'll explore a 1980s cold case that has now been solved through the use of DNA, revealing to the authorities that they had actually been dealing with a serial killer. All that coming right up. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13.
0: Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised.
2: Before we delve into today's episode, I'd just like to thank today's sponsor, Blueland. Cleaning is something that we all have to do all the time, and as I'm sure you have experienced, purchasing a cleaning product that doesn't perform as well as you wanted it to. It's super important to have the most effective cleaning products to get rid of any dirt that could build up on your house's surfaces and I'm sure you also know the struggle of having dozens of half empty bottles of cleaning products that don't work piling up in your cupboards. And with it being more important than ever to ensure you're being eco-friendly and using products that are vegan, cruelty-free and made with clean ingredients, not including chemicals like ammonia, chlorine, bleach and parabens, and that's why I'm super excited to introduce you all to today's sponsor, Blueland. With Blueland's Forever Bottles, you can reuse the bottle multiple times. Simply grab your Forever bottle and fill it with warm to hot water, then drop in your cleaning or soap tablets. Within minutes, you're ready to go with zero shaking or stirring required. Quick tip, make sure you put the nozzle on after the tablet has fully dissolved. Maybe you're after something new to wash the dishes with, Blue Land also have their Power Dish Soap which you just shake onto a wet sponge or directly onto dirty dishes and start your cleaning frenzy. Blueland products have the effectiveness to clean your home and get rid of that dirt, dust and grime, all while being eco-friendly, using EPA certified ingredients and having eco-friendly packaging. The best part about using Blueland products is that they use zero single-use plastics in their products, meaning that not only will you have a clean and healthy home, but you'll also be helping to fight against plastic pollutions in our oceans. Use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments to get yourself 20% off your first purchase for Blueland and give your home the clean it deserves. Now, back to the case. Maurice Ann Chivarella was born on the 25th of November 1954 in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, the United States. She was the fourth child born to Carmen and Mary. Maurice would actually be one of five children in the family, with her eldest brother Ronald being 16 years old, followed by her older sister Carmen, who was 13, then her brother Barry, who was 11 years old, and finally her younger brother David, who had been 7 years old. Her father, Carmen, actually owned and ran a grocery store called The Little Market, which had been located next door to the family home, and her mother, Mary, worked as an employee of the Geiser Knitting Mill. Maurice would oftentimes be seen helping her father out at the family grocery store as a clerk, and she and her family were well known within their local community. Maurice attended St. Joseph Parochial School, where she had been a third grade pupil. On Thursday the 18th of March 1964, Marie set off for school at about 8am. It's important to note that she had actually left for school a few minutes prior to her older brother Barry and her older sister Carmen, who both attended the same school, and they departed a few minutes later. Maurice had always walked to school with her brother and sister, but that particular morning was an exception, as she had decided to take two cans of fruit to school in honour of the feast day of one of the nuns, and so she had left a few minutes earlier than usual so that she would have time to donate the fruit cans at the school slash at the church before the morning's mass. his brother and sister thought that they'd probably catch up with their younger sister on the walk to school that day, but as they walked the route that the children had always taken to school that morning, Maurice was nowhere to be seen. Little did the two siblings know that day would mark the start of a 57 year long nightmare. You see the children would always return back to the family home at lunchtime to get lunch, and like clockwork, each of the children arrived back at the house, all but Maurice. Maurice's family weren't initially too concerned. Perhaps Maurice had simply decided to stay in the school's cafeteria for lunch that day or something like that, but to to put their minds at rest, they decided to go and check. They decided to go to the cafeteria to make sure she had eaten lunch and that she was okay. Though, Maurice was nowhere to be seen in the school's cafeteria. Maurice's family, now panicking, decided to go speak to her school teacher to see if they could get some answers. And her teacher told them something that made their stomachs drop. Maurice hadn't attended any of that morning's classes. Immediately, the police were contacted, and search efforts commenced. During their initial investigations in that early afternoon, the police spoke to Mrs. Helen Slatery, who had actually been Maurice's cousin, and she told the authorities that she had seen Maurice walking along the south side of Fort Street, at the intersection of Sherman Court, at about 8.10am. It was speculated that Mrs Helen Slatery had been the last person to have seen Maurice before she went missing. The authorities didn't have to search for long, tragically. As shortly after 1pm, Maurice's body was found near the bottom of an abandoned stripping in a Lovers Lane area in Milnesville by a 30-year-old man called Arthur Robinson. Maurice had been found fully clothed, bar her shoes, which were found just a short distance away from her. Arthur Robinson, the one who had found Maurice's body, had been an employee of Goldsworthy Service Station, and he had travelled to the area of the stripping in order to dump some ashes, which was when he discovered Maurice's remains. The stripping itself was located along a dirt road about one-fourth of a mile off the Hazelton Municipal Airport. The entrance to the stripping had been around 600 feet west of the airport's administration building, The city and state police were summoned to the scene, and the dirt road leading from the airport road was immediately blocked off to allow the investigators to comb through the crime scene. Dr John Gibbons, who was the Luzerne County Coroner, was also brought in in order to examine Maurice's body. Further, the Reverend and the Reverend's assistant from Maurice's school were brought to the crime scene to identify the remains which they sadly did positively identify to have been that of Maurice's. Maurice had been found bound and gagged. Her multicoloured scarf had been stuffed into her mouth in order to gag her, with her hands and legs bound together to restrain her. She had been wearing a dark jacket and skirt with black leotards. Maurice's remains had been seemingly dumped near the bottom of the stripping, around 26 feet over an embankment, among scattered ashes, garbage and other debris. As we mentioned, her shoes were located a short distance down the stripping, alongside her brown pocketbook and red school bag. An autopsy conducted that same day revealed that Maurice had been sexually assaulted before being murdered and dumped in the stripping hole. Following the autopsy, Maurice's body was released to a local funeral home to be prepared for her funeral. A press conference was held at 10.30pm that night, and the full force of the police swung into action to find who had been responsible. The police interviewed hundreds of people, and tried to use tangible, physical evidence in an effort to solve this crime. However, despite extensive manpower and resources, the case of Maurice's murder fell cold. The authorities were unable to find any leads, anything to point to who the killer had been, and it tragically remained that way for 57 years. Her killer and rapists walked free. That was until 2007. With the advances of forensic DNA and genealogy technologies, the police decided to take another look at the case using modern techniques. And it was announced at a press conference in 2007 that the state's DNA lab had developed a suspect profile using a DNA sample from bodily fluids that had been left on Maurice's jacket. Shortly after this suspect profile was created, the DNA profiles of all the suspects in the case were submitted to the lab to be compared against the suspect profile that they had developed. However, when the results for these comparisons came back, None of the suspect's DNA profiles matched, and those original suspects were subsequently eliminated and ruled out. The DNA lab, with these negative results, decided to upload the DNA profile that they'd extracted from the bodily fluids found on Maurice's jacket to the National DNA Database of Known Offenders, called CODIS, to see if they could find a match. Though, they again didn't find any matches. And every month from then onwards, the DNA lab checked the DNA sample against the CODIS database to see if they could find any matches. It wouldn't be until 2018 that any developments would be made in this case when the authorities worked with Parabon Nano Labs to generate a snapshot phenotype facial prediction of the suspects using the DNA sample. According to Parabon Nano Labs's website, DNA phenotyping is the prediction of physical appearance from DNA. It can be used to generate leads in cases where there are no suspects or database hits. To narrow suspect lists, and to help solve human remains cases. DNA carries the genetic instruction set for an individual's physical characteristics, producing the wide range of appearances among people. By determining how genetic information translates into physical appearance, it is possible to reverse-engineer DNA into a physical profile. Snapshot reads tens of thousands of genetic variations, or genotypes, from a DNA sample and uses this information to predict what an unknown person may look like. Over the past four years, using deep data mining and advanced machine learning algorithms, in a specialised bioinformatic pipeline, Parabon, with funding support from the US Department of Defense, developed the Snapshot Forensic DNA Phenotyping System, which accurately predicts genetic ancestry, eye colour, hair colour, skin colour, freckling and face shape in individuals from any ethnic background even individuals with mixed ancestry. Because some traits are partially determined by environmental factors and not DNA alone, snapshot trait predictions are presented with a corresponding measure of confidence, which reflects the degree to which such factors influence each particular trait. Traits such as eye color that are highly heritable, i.e. are not greatly affected by environmental factors, are predicted with higher accuracy and confidence than those that have lower heritability. These differences are shown in the confidence metrics that accompany each snapshot trait prediction. If you want to learn more about this technique, you can find a link to their website in the sources down below. The results of this snapshot phenotype facial prediction of the suspect show the suspect at the ages of 25, 40 and 60 years old. These images were used by the authorities to try to generate public interest in the case, and possibly find any leads. And as a result of this, the police actually received numerous tips and leads that they followed up on, though none of them proved to have been viable. But Parabon NanoLabs didn't just generate these images for the authorities, they also submitted the DNA profile to a database called GEDmatch. GEDmatch is a genealogy database that has actually been used to solve numerous other cold cases before, and it allows the authorities to compare DNA in that database to the DNA sample that they have. This can present matches of family members of the suspect, and when the DNA sample of the suspects in this case was submitted, they got a match. This match was found in 2019, and it was a very distant match, but it was a match nonetheless. They then had to use genealogy research to figure out how the match was related to the suspect, and this was a mammoth task. And so, in 2020, the authorities began working with an 18 year old genealogist called Eric Schubert. Eric had offered to work with the state police for free and to lend them his skill set of tracing down family trees to find matches. He'd actually assisted other police departments and several other cold cases before. Quote Mr. Schubert began genealogical work on the family tree of our match, and very shortly we were provided names of relatives who were scattered throughout the country, a police statement said. We were fortunate enough to have most of the related family cooperate and provide us their DNA samples. Subsequently, the murderer of nine-year-old Maurice Ann Chivarella was determined to have been a man called James Paul Forte. James had been 22 years old at the time of the murder and had lived about six blocks away from where Maurice had lived. It's interesting to note that no connection between James and Maurice's families was ever uncovered. They didn't know if James had known the family prior to the murder or not. James had actually died at the age of 38 due to a heart attack in a bar that he had worked in back in 1980. He had still been living in Hazelton and hadn't been married. And James had a criminal record. According to an article by Amanda Holpuck in the New York Times quote In 1974, Mr Forte pleaded guilty to aggravated assault and was sentenced to a year probation. Lieutenant Brutowski said that Mr Forte had sexually assaulted a woman in 1974 in an area used for coal mining, and in a recent interview, she told the police that she thought she would have been killed during the attack if not for a person who saw what was happening and stopped it. In 1978, Mr Forte was charged with recklessly endangering another person and harassment. The police said they did not have any further details on that case. On the 6th of January this year, 2022, the authorities exhumed James's body in order to obtain a DNA sample to concretely confirm that he had been the murderer. And on the 3rd of February, the results came back and confirmed the match. Let's take a listen to the family members of Maurice, who spoke at a press conference announcing that they'd found Maurice's killer on the 10th of February, 2022.
1: For those of you that, that may not know, my, my name is Ronald Chivarello. I'm the, the oldest uh, child from Carmen and Mary chivarola They introduced my sister, Carmen Marie. Uh, my older, uh, younger brother, but the oldest in the middle is Barry Chivarello and David Chivarello. To the members of the extended family, I wanted to say thank you for for coming today, Uh, not only for today, but for the support you've provided to us over the years. That's been very, so important. And I know extremely important to our parents. On behalf of the Carmen and Mary Chivarelle family standing here, we really wanna offer a heartfelt appreciation and an admiration for the Pennsylvania State Police. Over the we keep hearing 58 years, and that my goodness, that was a long time. But all of over those 58 years, the Pennsylvania State Police routinely made their presence known continuously. So continuously through those 58 years. They visited and called and up upda- with updates to the family. They they responded to questions we had. They asked a lot of questions. They provided comfort and hope. We've gained a very tight emotional connection to each other. And that can be a little dangerous, I believe, in a professional capacity. But it's also a, a treasure and a value for a family like ours that were affected by something like, like Maurice's loss. The Pennsylvania State Police were unquestionably committed to solving Maurice's case. I know that's repetition, but I'd like you to hear it again because it's something we feel in our hearts.
0: We have so many precious memories of Maurice. At the same time, our family will always feel the emptiness and the sorrow of her absence. Consequently, we will continue to ask ourselves what would have been, what could have been. So how does our family further embrace a sense of closure for the harm done to Maurice? Our parents' sentiments were expressed a long time ago. They never sought punishment or revenge, but did want justice. Thanks to the Pennsylvania State Police, our family now knows the identity of Maurice's murderer. Thanks to the Pennsylvania State Police, justice has been served today. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic except the caps and labels. Learn more at
2: madetoberemade.org. Before we take a look at this case, I just wish to note that it has been the wishes of the victims' families that the exact details of their deaths not be shared. So the following coverage will be very matter of fact, and will use information issued by the police that their families have approved for public use. Thursday the 7th of December 1978, at 6.15pm, 33-year-old Madeleine ferre liverdace who had been a writer for a magazine, was found lifeless in her home on Poplar Street, Denver, Colorado. The police who attended the scene quickly determined that Madeline had been murdered, and that the person who had murdered her had forced their way into her house before stabbing her fatally numerous times. It was further determined that the suspect had gone to her front door and confronted her before forcing their way in. Madeline had grown up in Central Florida and had been one of five sisters. Her family described her as being an avid swimmer during her childhood, something which she continued to do into her adult life. Madeline attended high school in Florida before going on to study and graduate from Tulane University. After graduation, Madeline led what her family described as being an adventurous life, travelling to Africa and Europe as part of her work as an editor for the children's magazine Ranger Rig. And it wasn't long before she got married and welcomed two daughters into the world, her children being her greatest joys. On Sunday the 10th of August 1980, at 7.10am, police officers in Denver attended a call on East 17th Avenue in Denver, due to a report of a woman lying in the road. When the police officers arrived at the scene, they were confronted with 53-year-old Dolores Barraha, who had sustained numerous stab wounds. Despite the best efforts of the local authorities, Dolores tragically passed away at the crime scene. Dolores had been attacked while she had been walking to work by an unknown assailant. According to her family, she was a wife, mother, grandmother and a beloved part of a loving family. Dolores had spent the summer of 1980 visiting her family in Denver and had found work at a hotel downtown. The Sunday that she was murdered was due to be her last day of work before returning back to her home. On Sunday the 21st of December 1980 at 10.45am, emergency services dispatchers received a 911 call from a member of the public who had found an unconscious woman lying in the streets near East 47th Avenue and Andrews Drive. Police officers were promptly dispatched and when they arrived on the scene They found 27-year-old Gwendolyn Harris tragically deceased. Gwendolyn, as with Dolores and Madeline, had been stabbed multiple times, with these injuries causing their deaths. She had last been seen the night before, on the 20th of December, at the Polo Club Lounge, which had been located in downtown Denver. Gwendolyn's family described her as being a mother, sister, daughter, aunt, granddaughter and niece. She was a bright, soft-spoken, athletic young woman, who had always enjoyed life. Gwendolyn had been the kind of person who always had a smile on her face, somebody who truly made the sunshine on even the darkest of days. On Saturday the 24th of January 1981, officers from the Adams County Sheriff's Office responded to a call of a woman lying in a field near 64th Avenue and Broadway. When the deputies arrived on the scene, they discovered 17-year-old Antoinette Parks, who, as with Gwendolyn, Dolores and Madeline, had been stabbed multiple times, resulting in her death. Antoinette had tragically already passed before the authorities could get to her. She had actually been six to seven months pregnant at the time of her tragic murder. According to her family, Antoinette had been a high school student who had attended Gateway High School in Aurora. She'd actually been the youngest of six and had grown up in Denver with her family. Antoinette was described as being someone who loved to sing and listen to music, she was caring, determined and loved children. Her family recalled that children were drawn to Antoinette, and if she had been looking after a family member's child, it was hard to get the child away from Antoinette, they just loved her that much. Her family further speculated that she would have likely gone into a career involving childcare or education. Notably, Antoinette was looking forward to having her own children. The police at the time did their best to investigate each of these murders, not knowing that they were all connected. They used all the resources available to them to conduct their investigations into the identity of the murderer. The authorities at the time spent hundreds if not thousands of man hours on these investigations, following leads and questioning potential suspects. Though, despite their best efforts, the investigators in any of the murders were unable to determine the identity of the murderer, or murderers. The investigative leads were exhausted, and the cases all grew cold. But that's not where this tragic story ends. The Denver Police Crime Laboratory worked continuously on all four of these cases, using new emerging technologies and methods that could present opportunities for new leads and advancements in their investigations. It wouldn't be until 2013 that the first progress would be made on the cases, and that was due to Denver's Integrated Cold Case Project. Denver's Integrated Cold Case Project was launched in 2004 and was a collaborative effort between the Denver Police Cold Case Unit, the Denver Police Crime Laboratory, and the Denver District Attorney's Office. Since 2004, the Integrated Cold Case Project has achieved outstanding results. They have conducted DNA analysis of more than 1,120 cases. They've had a CODIS, the DNA database for criminals, hit rate of 50% for those cases. And they've been able to file 130 criminal cases and have adjudicated 126 cases. Outstanding work. Since 2004, the Cold Case Project has received more than 4.2 million dollars in grant funding from the National Institute of Justice, which has allowed the project to dedicate additional resources in solving Denver's cold cases. Between 2013 and 2018, the murders of 33-year-old Madeleine Ferrey livaudes 53 53-year-old Dolores Baraja, 27-year-old Gwendolyn Harris, and 17-year-old Antoinette Parks were linked together through the use of DNA evidence. Three separate searches for familial links in Colorado were conducted during that five-year period. In 2019, the Denver Police Crime Lab began in-house investigative genetic genealogy work on these four linked cases, which actually led to a positive ancestry link to Texas. And so, in the summer of 2021, a familial search was conducted in Texas, which saw the identification of a close biological relative of the unidentified suspect. The suspect was then finally identified as Joe Irvin, though the investigators needed to conduct an examination and exhumation of his remains to be completely sure that they had the right man. In late 2021, Joe's remains were exhumed in Texas so that they could take DNA samples for direct comparison to the crime scene evidence. And In January of this year, 2022, it was confirmed that Joe Irvin had been the murderer in all four of these cases through DNA analysis. Quote, In some cold cases, the passage of years and decades makes solving cases more difficult But where DNA evidence exists, the evolution of science and technology has made it possible to identify perpetrators, seek justice for victims, and provide answers to victims' loved ones," said Dr. Gregory LaBerge, who was the director of the Denver Police Forensics and Evidence Division. Tragically, Joe Irvin had actually been involved in another murder case, On the 27th of June 1981, Aurora Police Officer Deborah Sue Corr had been patrolling alone when she had contacted Joe Irvin for a traffic violation. Basically, she just pulled him over for this traffic violation uh, and arrested him as, you know, he wasn't supposed to be driving. Joe actually broke free from Officer Deborah as she attempted to arrest and handcuff him. Joe then took Officer Deborah's firearm and fatally shot her. As all of this was happening, Aurora Police Explorer Scout Glenn Spies had been passing by and he tried to intervene, though Joe shot him in the back. Fortunately, Glenn Spies would survive this shooting. Joe was then arrested at his home in Aurora, and on the 1st of July 1981, while in custody for the murder of Officer Deborah, Joe Irvin committed suicide. He took the easy way out, avoiding any consequences for his actions. According to the press release concerning this case, quote The final identification of the suspect in these four murders through investigative genetic genealogy and familial DNA research was a result of Denver's integrated cold case project. This project is funded in part through a 2020 genetic genealogy and familial match searching grant awarded to the Denver Police Department by the Bureau of Justice Assistance for a total of $470,000. In addition to the funding provided by the 2020 Genetic Genealogy and Familial Match Searching Grant, Metro Denver Crime Stoppers and its Board of Directors generously provided $5,000 in funding to the Denver Police Department for testing and research related to the five separate cold case offender profiles, including Joe Irvin. Overall, Metro Denver Crime Stoppers have provided regional law enforcement agencies with a total of $41,000 in grant funding to date for 16 cases, including at least 17 victims, which has contributed to successful outcomes As with case 2, the third and final case in this episode will contain coverage that will be very matter of fact and will use information issued by the police that their families have approved for public use at about 2.42pm on the 5th of June 1986 in Eugene, Oregon, the police and fire medics were called out to an apartment due to a report of a deceased person. You see, an apartment employee had not seen 62-year-old Gladys May Hensley for several days and had grown concerned, so decided to conduct a welfare check on her to make sure she's okay. Though sadly, this apartment employee found Gladys deceased in her home. And horrifically, Gladys hadn't passed due to natural causes. She had been murdered. Her apartment had been found with the curtains drawn and the windows unlocked. The investigators failed to determine any suspects in the days following the murder, though they tried their best to follow any leads. They did manage to determine that Gladys had likely been killed in the early hours of the 4th of June 1986. Two weeks later, on the 19th of June 1986, the body of 33-year-old Janice Dickinson was found on a grassy hillside behind a car dealership on Coburg Road. Janice had been found naked and lying face-up near a tree, and the investigators quickly linked the murder of Janice to the murder of Gladys, as they had both happened within the same area of the town. Further, both Gladys and Janice had been murdered in a similar way both brutal, homicidal violence. Tragically, in both of these two cases, the investigators were unable to find any solid leads or suspects. And so, their cases grew cold. That was until two years later. In the evening of the 27th of February 1988, 73-year-old Geraldine Touhey had been on the phone with her sister when suddenly the phone line went dead. Geraldine's sister didn't find this to have been immediately of concern, as perhaps there had been a small power outage in our area, or she had received another call, or something like that. Though when her sister dropped by Geraldine's house the next day to pick her up for church, she was met with a gruesome scene. Geraldine's body, half naked, on the living room floor. She had been stabbed, strangled, and sexually assaulted. The investigators quickly linked Geraldine's case to the murders of Gladys and Janice. It was determined that Geraldine's murderer had broken in through her front door, and had seemingly known that she had been home alone. Further, the murderer had cut the phone lines to the home, which explains how the phone call that Geraldine was having with her sister was so suddenly and abruptly cut short. Sadly, as with Gladys and Janice's cases, Geraldine's case also grew cold as they were unable to find any more leads or suspects in the course of their investigations. According to the official police press release, several persons of interest were developed and thoroughly investigated over the years since the murders, though they were all excluded through DNA comparison. All three of the cases, as we mentioned, completely lacked any strong leads, and it appeared that the three cases may remain cold unless they could find that crucial piece of evidence that could help close them. In 2016, Parabon Nanolabs came onto the scene. We know Parabon Nanolabs from earlier on in this video, and they played a pivotal role in this case too. They worked with the authorities on these cases and used snapchart phenotyping to try to generate any leads. And in September of 2017, the Eugene Police Department received the results from Parabon. The authorities publicised the detailed Snapshots report in 2018 and established a dedicated tip line for the cases, hoping that somebody out there knew something. As a result of this, more than 100 new tips came in and were subsequently followed up on by the Eugene Police Department's Violent Crimes Unit, though all of these leads and names given resulted in nothing concrete and the names were eliminated as suspects. In May of 2018, the authorities enlisted the help of Parabon NanoLabs once more, and used their genetic genealogy service in the hopes of closing the cases. And this actually gave the investigators four potential suspects. The authorities conducted an extensive follow-up on all four of these potential suspects. They further analysed additional evidence connected to the cases, and subsequently, they identified a suspect. This suspect was John Charles Bolsinger. John had been born on the 17th of September 1957, and unfortunately for the investigation and for justice, he had ended his life on the 23rd of March 1988 in Springfield, Oregon. The detectives then worked on establishing a timeline for John from the years of 1975 to 1988. As it turns out, John had actually been arrested for murder in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1980, and have been sentenced to just five years imprisonment. Five years for murder is really not enough at all. You get more for just the possession of drugs. Like, what is that sentence? Regardless, he was paroled on the 7th of March 1986. The 7th of March 1986 being about three months before the murder of Gladys Hensley. Interestingly, on the 26th of September 1986, John was actually arrested for burglary by the Springfield Police Department. This is what the official press release states about the review into that investigation. Quote, On September 26, 1986, SPD patrol officers were dispatched to the 300 block of South 51st Place regarding a burglary in process. Upon arrival, officers heard the female complainant screaming and learned the suspect had fled the residence. The female victim told officers she was at home and having trouble sleeping. She heard her dog making strange noises in the kitchen, so she went to investigate. All of the interior lights were off. There was a light on outside at the rear sliding door. She saw a suspect peering through her kitchen window. She saw the window slide open and then the suspect reach inside and removed a brace in the slider. She ran back to the living room and called 911. While on the phone, she saw the suspect walk into the living room. He stood still for a moment and then approached her. She started screaming as the suspect tried to pull the phone from her hand. She started striking the suspect with the phone and a flashlight. The suspects fled through the kitchen window. He left behind a down vest and paring knife. The suspect, John Bolsinger, ran from the police, but he was captured by an SPD canine officer and his canine. Good dog. The suspect claimed he knocked at the door three to four times and then walked away when he didn't get an answer. He claimed to have memory loss when questioned further. How convenient. Thankfully, the eyes of the law saw straight through John's bullshit. John was then sentenced to five years imprisonment in the Oregon Department of Corrections. He was then transferred to the Utah State Prison on the 4th of August 1987, where he remained on a parole violation until the 7th of December 1987. On the 11th of December 1987, John enrolled at the Lane Community College. Bear in mind at this point he was out of prison. And as we know, on the 28th of February 1988, Geraldine was found to have been murdered. Geraldine's case was highly publicised by the authorities, with a sketch of the suspect being released on the 5th of March 1988, though on the 23rd of March 1988, John was found dead in his apartment after ending his own life. The press release from the authorities goes on to say, quote, The Eugene Police Department and the Oregon State Police are pleased to finally bring closure to the family members of Gladys, Janice, and Geraldine, as well as our community. Both agencies remain committed to constantly evaluating unsolved cases and utilising emerging technologies to bring closure to other families of crime victims. This resolution would not have been possible without the dedication of numerous police officers, detectives, crime scene investigators, and crime lab analysts over the last 35 years. And that's everything that we have for you in today's episode. I hope you found this change in format to be interesting and a bit refreshing. Let me know in the comments down below if you want to see more content like this. Be sure to subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video, just like this one. Massive thank you to Blueland for sponsoring this episode. You can find a link down below to get your 20% off your first order with them. Uh, you can find that link at the top of the description and in the pinned comments. It's sponsors like Blueland that make creating content like this possible, especially as I'm sure a lot of you are aware Uh, YouTube just does not like it. So thank you so much to all the sponsors who help make this stuff possible, and thank you to all of you guys who watch those sponsorships and, you know, make these possible too. So I can't thank everyone enough. A special thank you to my Patreon members and channel members. Lisa Barnett, Lady Janice, Mimi Fisher, Kirsty, Jade G, Patricia Luna, Casey Monks, Samantha O'Hara, Cicely Thomas, Bellamythius, Nino Lover, MG, Bailey's Cup House, and Casey from the other side. If you want to support this channel, get access to monthly case polls, audio versions of my videos, the scripts and more. Hit that join button down below next to the subscribe button or go to patreon.com slash Joshua Miles and become a Patreon or channel member today. There's also exclusive chat rooms over on our Discord server if you're a Patreon or channel member, if you want to talk to me about basically anything. Uh, And if you just want to join the Discord server, um, you can do that too for free. You can find the links all below. All those links are down below. With all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.